Here it is. Acts 11.4. And thank you, Dan, for teaching. God bless you. Amen. Pastor Harry, could you begin us with prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can gather together in freedom to learn about your word. We do also thank you this morning for healing our teacher, Bob DeWay, and for bringing him back to us. And uh, Lord, we pray that you'd give him words to say and we would have ears to hear. And Lord, we do pray for a profitable study together that we learn more about you, your glorious kingdom, that we learn about what the book of Acts says, that we'd be better readers of Luke Acts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we were on Acts 11.4. Acts 11.4. But Peter began and explained it to them in an orderly sequence saying. Now, we were discussing that. And I pointed out that orderly sequence does not denote or uh, chronological precision that this happened then this happened then this happened in that precise chronological order His, the, that's probably not what that word means the term translated orderly sequence is only found in Luke Acts so in the case of Luke he used the same idea in Luke 1 and verse 3. It seemed best to me also because I followed all things carefully from the beginning to write them down in orderly sequence for you, most excellent Theophilus. What we're going to do is we're going to see a, an amazing illustration from Luke and then from Acts, of how Luke does this and how powerful it is. Be ready to read some Bible verses. I'm very, very excited about this. And I th- hopefully that'll be true for you as well. Cool. I have a slide, and I think it's part of your printout. And I think Kenneth Bailey is the one who helped me understand this. But we have here the travel narrative begins in Luke 9.51. And what Luke does, this is unique to Luke, by the way, the other Gospels have their own way of telling the story, that everything's about Jerusalem. I'll show you how and why. And so in inverse order, follow me, what must I do? Prayer signs, the kingdom, the Pharisees, money. Then you get to the middle of it and back the other way. Kingdom, the call, not yet. Conflict for the Pharisees, signs, prayer. It's an inverse order. So this we could call an inverse parallel structure. Very similar to the idea of chiasm that we've talked to you about. Let me say something that's important I thought about when I had a lot of time to sit around and think last week. What we value here 
is understanding what God said. In other words, better knowing what is revealed. Most of the religious world values learning secrets. Okay? We're not trying to find secrets that God never even said. This structure is there in the text, and we discover it by reading. The Hebraic background of the Old Testament and New Testament helps us understand what's revealed, not to find something that was never revealed. The word secret means occult. We want to know what God said. And it's so beautiful. Wait until you see this. I'm so excited. Let me uh, start finding readers. Before Luke 9.51, we have an important statement in Luke 9.22. Who wants to read Luke 9.22? Okay, Clodoris over here, Luke 9.22. I'll read starting in uh, 21. But he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised on the third day. Okay, that's Luke 9.22. Now, the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected. Must is... Day, day, divine divine necessity. necessity. The reason Jesus must be rejected in Jerusalem is because of the purpose of God. So the orderly sequence in Luke Acts is to reveal the purpose of God to people who love the truth. Now, it is accurate to say that if our hearts are hardened and we hate God's purposes, the same thing that is revealing the truth to people who welcome it hardens the others. The rest are hardened. But it's not because the words don't mean what they say. It's because of the state of the heart. Jesus did many miracles right in front of the Pharisees and Sadducees. But what did they do? They rejected God's purposes for themselves. Now, in this orderly sequence, as Eric has taught us and as we've learned many times, the emphatic position, the first one, the middle one, and the last one. In this case, Some of this, I may just read myself. Open your Bible, whatever your translation is, to Luke 9.51. What I want to do better, by God's grace, if I can possibly do it, is I want to better help you be able to read yourselves and get excited about what God said. This is not for some people with a high IQ or some secret knowledge or some extraordinary Christians, which you know what I think about that. This is for Christians who read. We want to learn how to read. Okay. 
Let me read something to you. I'll look at it in your own Bible. Luke 9, 51. I'm using the ESV. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, that's literal. That's why I use ESV. I don't know what yours says, but it says set his face. Now, you can do this right now. In your mind, start thinking, gee, I read the whole Bible. Where else have I read about setting your face? I'll give you the answer in a bit, but just think about it. He set his face, cross upon his face, to go to Jerusalem. Verse 52, and he sent messengers ahead who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Verse 53, but the people did not receive the Greek word dekomai. They did not welcome him or welcome them. Did not welcome him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Why did the Samaritans not welcome the messengers of Jesus because of the face set to Jerusalem? That's the question you need to ask yourself if you're a good reader. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them. The term rebuked, epitamao, used 29 times in the New Testament, 9 in Luke. The context shows that they do not yet receive God's purposes for Christ to suffer in Jerusalem. All right, anybody think of any other place where it says set his face? Pastor Eric. Um, Isaiah 50, verse 7. So this is the, the suffering servant. It says, but the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Right. There's an allusion to Isaiah. And if you read verse 6, go ahead and read 6. <clears throat> I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Wow. Yeah. yeah, all of it. The Samaritans are not welcoming God's messengers because of this setting of face to Jerusalem. They were not interested in a Jewish Messiah who is going to be rejected. One of the great things, you need to know this, the world, not the Jews, not the Samaritans, not the Arabs, not anybody in the world was ever saying, what we want is a rejected Jewish Messiah who fails, who is rejected even by his own people who came into this world, he can't even get Jerusalem straightened out. What good is he? But this was the city where the focus of God's purposes was. If he can't even straighten that out, Bethlehem comes into the story too. What is this? See, we can't just let our Christian tradition 
Say, oh, everybody knows that. That's easy. That's an easy one. No, it isn't. In fact, it's so difficult that if God doesn't do a work of grace in our hearts, we'll all reject him. Luke 9.22, he was going to Jerusalem to be rejected. Luke 9.51, he set his face. That Luke is telling us what we're supposed to know. Luke is working really hard so we can follow this and know what we're supposed to know. When I first saw this in the 90s, in, in my class with Dr. Versaput, I was excited. I was so excited that we can read. I'm going to give you an assignment at the end of this class so you get to go do that. You can read. I'll give you something where I have no leg up because when I was in the hospital, I had no commentary, no internet, and cable TV right from 1985. (laughs) No channel guide, no... I told Diane, if I get better, it's going to be really bad. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I did, so I sat and read the Bible. All I had was a paper one. I'll give you an assignment based on an idea that I had when that happened. You can do it. You can actually read better than me and tell me I'm wrong. But it doesn't matter who's right and who's wrong. What did the author mean? What did Luke? Luke was inspired by the Spirit. You couldn't dream this up unless God was with you. How did Luke do that? Here's another one, if you want to jot it down. Jeremiah 21.10. For I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It will be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. He shall burn it with fire. The Lord set his face against the city. Now, uh, Jeremiah believed that. What happened to Jeremiah because he believed what God said? They threw him in a pit, right? He would have still been in there, but some foreigner drug him out. Let me get you excited, I hope, if I'm a half a good teacher as I wish I was. I was reading this after our last class on this at home. I got really excited about it. Luke uses reviews and previews. Echoes. Okay? So Luke here is about a journey to Jerusalem to be rejected. Let me tell you where the echo lands with this, with this theme. In Acts, Paul likewise embarks on a journey to Jerusalem to be rejected. I often wonder, why did Agabus tie his rope around himself and say, this is what's going to happen to you, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem? And they pleaded with him. He said, why are you breaking my heart? Paul is on a mission like Jesus was to go to Jerusalem to be rejected. I got excited about that reading. God's purpose includes 
rejection in Jerusalem. Let's read some more. Let's go to the middle one. Um, Luke 13, 22 to 35. There's a tragic event in, I think it's Luke 13, 34. Could somebody look that up? Yeah, maybe you can find my cursor. Somebody look up Luke 13, 34. I hope I have the right. We got it. Luke 13, 34. Should I go for the reading? O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Thank you, sir. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? Yeah, thank you, Eric. That is one of the most important verses in Luke-Acts. Luke 13:34 There's a lament over Jerusalem. Jesus is God incarnate. And he's on he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He said in Luke 9:22 that he's going to be rejected, but in the middle of it, okay, so it goes through this order, follow me and so on. Now he gets to the middle, which is emphatic he laments over Jerusalem. If you want to understand Luke, you better know Luke 13:34 and its significance. Now, we might say this in our humanity and our fin- finitude. Well, if uh, this was all determined from the Old Testament times and it was prophesied in Isaiah, it was all certain. Well, then why is Jesus praying and crying and weeping? Because the angst and the tragedy and the sorrow is real. People say they have, you have to be an open theist where God doesn't know the future. Otherwise, nothing matters. They don't even, they're not even trying. Jesus is fully human and fully God. He's sinless. But the passion, the agony, the love for his people that he knows are going to reject him is still real. We have a compassionate high priest who's at the throne of God who cares more about us than anybody on this world. Hallelujah. And we can go to him. And yes, we suffer. Yes, it's hard. Yes, we lack answers. But God will never give up on his own, and he will pray for us. So related to that, and and Jesus being, you know, our high priest who's compassionate and everything else, and and then thinking about the sovereignty of God and his omniscience, and uh, he knows all, and he's determined, you know, the end from the beginning. Um, When we think about that, you know, process theology, open open uh, theism, all that stuff where, where God just reacts to what we do. We know that isn't, isn't the case. But is it true that when God is grieved or when we, when, when we uh, do something or he's pleased, grieved when we do something sinful, 
and, 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 and pleased when we, when we obey him. I mean, that, he does have that emotion, right, that capacity. He's affected by what we do in that sense. But, it, correct? I mean, uh, I don't, do you know yeah, what I'm we, trying to ask? We don't teach that God, what's the word for having no passion, Eric? What's that theological word, impassable? No, what is the term? Not immutable. We know he doesn't no, change. That's not the, yeah, right. There's a term in theology. I think that's it. There's a term that says God would be like the perfect Greek philosopher who feels nothing. Stoic. Uh, that's stoicism. false. Yeah, that's false. That's yeah. false. He, let me tell a quick story from when I was in the hospital. I had a crisis that happened. My oxygen in my blood was going down. My heart rate was going up. It was getting worse. I couldn't do anything about it. I'd had a reaction. I had a reaction to something. Of course, that happens at Antibiotic. One, one in the morning. And this guy, God bless him, was trying to help me. Finally said, the guy told me, quit looking at the numbers. Because I couldn't even breathe. I couldn't do anything. So I turned around, sat down. And I, just, I knew right then and right there, I will never sleep tonight. I know that. I'm not going to sleep. I can't sleep. And then I thought this. I'm telling this now because it came up. What do I preach? Two of you call, had called me. Two elders actually called me that day, both of whom prayed for me and mentioned the promises of God whatever day I went in. And I sat there, and I thought, I'm telling everybody at church to believe the promises of God. Am I going to do it or not? So I just sat there, and let me tell you something. When you get in your worst moment, if you think some complex theory about this and that and this and that and everything else, and you're going to figure all that out and feel better, it will never happen. It better be simple, or it won't happen. Here's what I thought. And I sat there. I thought this. The Bible says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. That's what you're asking about. Why is he lamenting over Jerusalem? Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, cares for this pathetic farm boy. I believed it. And one other verse came to me. Cast not away your confidence, which has a great reward. And I thought, I don't, I didn't have any commentary or anything. I just sat there and thought, I'm pretty sure that confidence isn't confidence in me, but confidence in God. So I just sat there and thought, I'm going to just turn this over to God. I believe his promise. He cares for me, and I'm not going to throw away my confidence. I'm just going to sit here. So pretty soon that guy who had all this whole, all these sick people on his floor, one guy at 1 in the morning running around trying to help everybody, he came back in the room, and there I sit. I just sat there. He says, do you want to know what you I have a thing on that I could do nothing about. Heart rate going up, oxygen going down. Do you want to know what your numbers are? I said, fine. 
He said, your oxygen is 96 and your heart rate's down. I said, oh, what do you know? It doesn't hurt to practice what you preach, does it? What did I learn? You need to know the simple, basic promises of God and believe that. If it's hyper-complex, it will do you no good at your worst moment. You'll never figure it out. Now I'm going to give you an assignment later that will help you just figure out how you read these things and think that way. Everybody goes to the complex. I got sermons coming up. I don't know when. They're all written, but one of them I'm going to go into Job. And in fact, I even had an idea, but I'm not an artist. I should create a certificate of graduation from the Eliphaz School of Counseling. <laughs> Would be bad. You don't want that. It's probably about what you get if you go to a, some of these places. So there's my story. That's the point. You're not going to think about all these deep philosophical questions. Well, how can God feel something if, if God is all-knowing and all-powerful? And This is here so we see the tragedy of Jerusalem rejecting the one who came in the name of the Lord, rejecting her own Messiah, rejecting the one who set his face to go there. Jesus went on a long journey to be rejected. Orderly sequence is this layout. And you can break it down even to more detail. Uh, Kenneth Bailey does that. So there's the center, Luke 13, 34. Now let's go to the end. The beginning, I set my face. The center, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I wanted to gather you, but you would not come. You would not have it. By the way, people that translate different parts of the Bible, they're experts in language. Why do we use different translations? Because somebody has to decide whether that phrase, set his face, needs to be translated literally because it loses something. Not everybody gets that. In this case, ESV got it. So I decided it was important because there was an allusion to Isaiah. Because of that, I think it should be translated that way. But we need to read. We need to learn how to read. Use our tools. Now, Luke 19.41. I'll read this one. When he approached Jerusalem, this is at the very end. Last time I was trying to have Eric over here read this and gave him the wrong verse. But this time we'll get it right. When he approached, he approached, he's heading toward Jerusalem. We know since Luke 9.22 that he's going to be rejected. He saw the city and wept over it. He wept over it. He laments in Luke 13.34. He weeps. In Luke 19.41, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the day, the things that make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you 
and surround you and hem you in on every side, in verse 44, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The tragedy is unmistakable, but it's not done. If you read Luke Acts, which a lot of theologians cannot do because their theology won't let them. They say, God's done with Jerusalem. God's done with the Jews. God's done with Israel. Never, ever again. It's all over. It's not what Luke is saying. You're not seeing me again until you say, blessed is he whose coming is in the name of the Lord. There's a future coming to Jerusalem that hasn't happened yet where they will finally recognize the one who set his face. Eric, please comment if you can. You know, it's interesting you brought us earlier on to the passage where Jerusalem is the one that always crucifies and kills the prophets. Jesus Christ is the prophet, the prophet par excellence, the one that Moses foretold in Deuteronomy 18, that if Israel wouldn't listen to him, it would be required of them. And so he comes, and Bob has mentioned this term visitation at the end of verse 44. The term episcopate, it's where we get our term episcopal. It's a term we get for elder. This is a visitation from God, and any time God visits humanity, either they're going to believe and therefore be saved, or there's going to be disbelief and there's going to be judgment. And so here Jesus is saying, you didn't believe, and there's going to be judgment. He prophesies the 70 AD destruction, but like Bob said, it's not the end of the story. There is coming a glorious day where he's going to return in a visitation in which they will all come to faith. And you see this in Zechariah 12.10. One day the Lord will pour out a spirit upon Israel, and they will mourn for him, that is the Messiah, as one mourns for an only child. So like Bob is saying, is this tragedy is designed because the resurrection only comes after suffering. The resurrection of Israel will only come after their suffering. That's what happens. Suffering comes first for the people of God, and then the glories are to follow. So I, I'm sorry, I'm going on and on. But... No, don't be sorry. That's a good reading. Too bad you don't drink coffee. <laughs> I got water. <laughs> All right, let me advance a slide here. This is just for you to see, just in a smaller section, all of the Luke writes in these inverted parallel structures. Now, there's a little disjuncted E and D and D and E, but you could make those one and it would end up with the same judgment and vision. You could just say one. But uh, it's just how Luke writes. All right, we got to make some progress. Now, remember, Peter is explaining to the apostles in Jerusalem, why did you eat with Gentiles? Now, if you remember, they're not concerned that he baptized Gentiles. He just don't want them to eat. Don't eat with them. That's bad. Can't eat with those people. Now, it's true that the Jews suffered for centuries being rejected by everybody else in the world. 
and literally being persecuted unto death and driven from almost every country. And so they paid a high price to be the people of the promise. Okay. So now God comes on the scene in the person of Christ. And he says, God's purpose is going to be fulfilled by people that go through the entire world. God is going to save Gentiles. And this is no longer simply a version of Judaism. This is the church. And it's made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And they felt like they were being slapped in the face. That's why Paul was so angry at Stephen. Wanted him dead. We went through all of this for all of these centuries. So now God could save Gentiles and we got to go sit down and eat with them. Yep. Gee, I wonder why they had a problem with that. Let me tell you something. We all have to learn to be good readers. What the Bible means, we want to know what God said. We need to know how they thought about things to understand the meaning of terms that they use. And because we don't, we just we get all confused. I'm interested in questions I get, but one common one is what happens to dogs when they, you know, somebody's dog has to be put down. They want to know if they're going to be in heaven. And I say, well, it's hard for me to tell them that question would never be asked by anybody in the Bible. Do you know why? Every single reverence to dogs everywhere is bad. Dogs are jackals. They're unclean. They're nasty. Outsider dogs. See, if you're trying to uh, interpret that story of the rich man Lazarus and the dogs are licking. There's an irony going on there. That these wicked, jackal, dirty dogs are treating a guy better than the rich man did. That doesn't mean we can't love dogs and we can't have pets. But if you want to know what the Bible means when it says outsider dogs, you're not going to discover it by knowing what Americans think. We got to know what they thought. And then what does the Bible say about what we're free to do or not to do? Well, we can have dogs. There's no prohibition to that. And and uh, a lot of people in America, I mean, let's just put it this way. When we were kids, we watched Rin Tin Tin, Lassie, Old Yeller. I guarantee you, that they don't show in that in Israel. <laughs> unclean, unclean. Americans are not the same. So we need to know what they believed. What did they mean? Now that's, that's why I bring that up with these wild beasts. Therion. It's used again in Acts 28, 4, and 5. It's used of the Antichrist in Revelation, it says, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners 
from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. So that would be, that's something different in this account than when it was mentioned earlier. And I, th- I would say this, Peter is just telling them, this is not what we want to hear. We're not going to go eat wild beasts normally. That would be bad. It's used in Acts 28, 4 and 5. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, undoubtedly this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. So they believed in karma or whatever, 28.5. However, he shook the creature off of the fire and suffered no harm. Very young. Even a wild beast didn't hurt him. Then they thought he was a god. They're pagans. Let me give you a, a good goal for life for every one of us. We need to have a Christian worldview. How we see life needs to be informed by the Bible, not the pagan culture around us. And we need to know what God has allowed and what he hasn't, what's bound, what's loosed, what's Christian liberty, what isn't. We need to know these things. And pagans are always going to ask the same question. Who sinned? Who did something bad? They're always going to think, whatever happened, you deserved it. That's the Job School of Counseling. I'll talk about that in a couple upcoming sermons. Well, that's how the pagans think. But I want to ask you and I, how do we think? I'm going to give you an assignment where you get a chance to maybe learn something about that out of one big chapter of the Bible. Yes, sir. I don't know. Somebody wanted to... Yeah, I was thinking of God's grace, and I was thinking about forgiveness of sins and how I used to think of that verse, uh, Lord's Prayer even, uh, Lord, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Yes. Tying it in with my own salvation, though. So every time I'd sin, I would think, oh, boy, I have to repent, and I have to ask for forgiveness as if I've lost it again. But thinking of God's grace, it's more of a, we have a security in salvation if we believe we have the assurance that we're eternal life. Amen. But it then, as we live out our Christian life to please God, it's all grace. We never, we'll never earn any of it. But he says if you rebel, like in Isaiah, you quench the Holy Spirit. So it's this idea that sin is not good. It hinders God's work. And it's just that idea. Okay, let me interact with that a little bit. One of the things that we have as a promise of God in the Bible is forgiveness of sins. And one of the things that's true about, there's this word in the Greek called hapax. It means once and for all. Once and for all. 
So we are continually being cleansed. But what's not true, I'll just relate it to what happened to me when uh, the only thing I could think of was believe the promise of God. When you are in really bad shape and you can't do anything about it and your mind starts going everywhere, what sin did I do? If your mind doesn't go there, thank God, mine did. That's what made me think, well, what am I preaching? What's this about? What am I supposed to learn? Why is this going on? What is... And that will, my heart rate can about ready to wreck their machine. Amount of oxygen going down. Panic. I sit down and I think, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. I don't know if I can figure out all my sins, but I do know he cares for me. Well, we're going to have an assignment. We'll have some fun trying to figure this out. That's how I want to be a better teacher. I want to be like Dr. Versa put and let people read and come to know what it says. But it's my job to explain Acts 11, 5, and 6. And I'm saying, I believe Luke uses theria because he wants to make it even sound even worse right here when Peter tells the other apostles. That sounds even worse. Beasts are not good. The beast is the Antichrist. Okay. Four-footed animals and wild beasts? That's bad. Acts 11, 7 and 8. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. This is Peter telling the disciples in Jerusalem what had happened. Kill is the word thuo, it means slaughter for sacrifice. You can't slaughter for sacrifice unclean beasts. Yeah. Everything in these Jewish men, their minds are exploding. What? What? Kill and sacrifice? What God hates and God rejected? This takes a big deal to believe what God said and what God's doing. The the word for clean or cleanse is katharizo, where we get our word catharsis. And akathartos is used for unclean spirits. So all the connotations are bad. Common is koinos. That means ordinary and profane, not fit for holy use. So it's all bad. Unclean, common, beasts. Jesus said in Luke eleven thirty nine, But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you are full of 
robbery and wickedness. See, it is a work of grace that we see our true need. We need God to cleanse us from the inside out. I got home from the hospital and opened up an email and some guy was just tearing into me. He's still doing it. He says, you don't listen to God. You don't, God's not using you. You won't listen to God. You're not led by the Spirit. He's just attacking me. He said, you tell me one time the Holy Spirit ever talked to you. See, this guy believes that if you do enough miracles and stuff, then you're an apostle. And he read an article where I said, there are no new apostles. So he just tore into me. So I just kept going. I thought, yeah, I'm going to do this different. I kept preaching Christ to him. I told him about Christ once for all. God cleanses sin. And then he attacked me on something else. So I said to him, all right, I will tell you when God spoke to me. I was an enemy of Christ, an enemy of the gospel, blaspheming Christ, hostile to everything. And one day, I'll tell you the day, July 18th, 1971, in my fiance's backyard, it became clear to me that I was a wicked sinner, that God exists, Christ is true, I'm a wicked sinner, and I need to repent right here and right now and trust in Christ. And I did. I will tell you, I said to this guy, that was the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he convicts the world, sin, righteousness, and judgment, right? Then he just starts attacking me. Well, I'm the apostle of God, and I've done miracles, and you're just giving excuse. You don't want to listen to God. You're horrible. He just keeps attacking me. We'll all get attacked. Here's the question. What is a true work of the Spirit? You know, if God didn't do a work of the Spirit, we'd all just get mad and never listen to a Jewish Messiah. We would never confess him. I was as hard-hearted as anybody, and it was a work of God that I found out that was true, yes. Um, I know we don't have a lot of time, so I'll try to be very brief. Oh, no hurry. Um, Last week, my wife and I, we bought a piece of furniture, and we, we spoke to the, the, the sales guy. was a very, very good, you know, just a very nice guy. You know, every, it was a, a wonderful experience, and we were walking out. We had completed the transaction. We were walking out of the store, and we said goodbye and all of that, but he kind of kept with us, and so we got into a discussion, and uh, he told us a little bit about his life how his father had been murdered. He was raised up in Chicago. He's a black fellow. Um, but we got onto subjects of matters of faith, and we talk about the Holy Spirit. He described to us, this was such a wonderful thing. He described to us that one day, you know, he, he struggled with whether to believe in Jesus Christ. He str- struggled with that. And I, and I told, I was telling him, a little bit about my testimony, how, you know, I questioned for many years. And he said, you know, one day I was at church. I opened the Bible. We were reading from the Bible. And it's just like a veil was taken away from my from my mind. And it all made sense. Everything 
You know, and, and I believed at that time, at that point, see, so we, we really, it was a wonderful thing because my wife and I and this, this fellow, we, we just, you know, we really had just a wonderful time just talking about how miraculous, how miraculous faith is and how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. So that's, that's how the Holy Spirit, that's yeah. just one thing. Thank you. You know, after one of these sessions here, I had our CIC web person put on the front page how to discern a true work of the Spirit. Eric mastered that. And it's remarkably consistent. You confess Christ. Well, what did Jesus say? When he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will testify of me. And no, oh, no, that's not it. You need to get mystical revelations from the world of the spirits. Well, I may not be any good at that, but I can believe what God said. I agree with Luther. The Holy Spirit comes to us through the word, not through the Pope. Lonnie. I had one here, too, but you stole my thunder, Bob. I was going to 1 John 4. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to determine if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you know the spirit of God. Every spirit who confesses that Jesus Christ has come into flesh is from God. And it goes on to talk about the Antichrist and many in the world now. Absolutely. So this guy wanted to get into a miracle story contest to prove he was better than me. Well, the miracle story I know is that God forgave my sins. Yes. Yeah, I just just wanted to say when I became saved, I immediately, there was this one person uh, next door to me uh, well, in the, in, the, in the apartment next to me. And he, before, he was always sharing his faith with me. And I knew he was one of those crazy Christians. But I'll tell you what, the first... There's a lot of them around. Immediately after I was saved, I knew I have to find that person immediately. So I went next door to him, and I told him what happened. Yeah, and I had no choice. I had to go back to work. And I was yelling about how much I hated Christianity at work. And I had to go back the next night and tell them, now I'm a Christian. <laughs> oh, well, I guess I'm not going to ask you about religion anymore. They don't want to hear about it. Okay, one, let's do a couple first, and I'll give you your assignment. Acts 11, 9 and 10. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. This testimony is the key to understanding what it means to be acceptable to God and his people. You know a lesson that we need to learn from this? If God accepts somebody on the grounds of the blood of Jesus cleanse their sins... Aren't we wicked to reject them because we don't like something, they're too tall or they're from the wrong country or we don't like the food to eat 
or some other nationality. That's all Peter was trying to say. I can't reject these people because God accepted them. How do we know God accepted somebody? Yeah, they confess the truth of the gospel. Come willing to come to him on his terms. Dr. Peterson said the divine words that interpret the vision have profound implications for mission. For the doctrine of the church and for a Christian perspective on the law of Moses, holiness in terms of ritual cleanse, cleanness is now replaced by cleansing and sanctification through faith in Christ. You can't go through enough rituals to be clean, but you can believe Jesus who cleanses sinners. Peter uses words designed to help the Jerusalem believers to accept the truth just as God worked supernaturally to make sure Peter understood and accepted the truth. Now, you would think this would be the end of it. There's a pretty good outcome. But it isn't the end because we have another problem. and They have to have a council over it. This was such a big deal. They don't want to give up their status because they suffered for it for centuries. They don't want to give it up. God's going to let anybody in. All they got to do is believe in Christ. And even worse, God's going to take Jews that never did anything unclean and keep them out because they won't believe in your Messiah. Yes, that's the way it is. That's exactly the way it is. Not easy. Now, I told you a little story here. I want to give you your assignment. Everybody turn in your Bible to John 9. My story was I had no Internet access, no study guides, no Greek Bible. I happened to have the Holman Christian Standard Bible. I finally started feeling good enough. I wanted to study. I told some people that. When you see me study, you know I'm better. I gravitate to that immediately. So I sat and read the, the entirety of John 9, doing a Dr. Versaput. What's the main point? And uh, I, I've never have looked it up. I decided I'm going to come to church and let you do this. Here's what Dr. Versaput told us. You can use anything you want. Any Bible translation, if you have the Greek, you probably want to use it, but you don't have to. you got commentaries, you can use them, but they may mislead you. Beware. I want you to learn how to read. John, who was inspired by the Spirit, wrote, a, I think, a fantastic story. And he's trying to tell us a main point. It doesn't mean there aren't any other things to learn. What you want to do, let me give you some guidelines that will make you better at this. Look for repeated terms that keep coming back up 
and then ask yourself why. Some key statements or questions that are asked. Why? I noticed some parenthetical statements. Why is that in there? And then some things happen. Now, another thing I had in seminary was learning how to read narrative. Tension is how you read narrative. Tension goes up and then gets resolved and goes up and gets resolved. And then the big, a pricaby would be a narrative unit. And it has to get resolved within that unit. You know, there may be a bigger story going on. I think I know what the answer is, but I might be wrong. This is your chance to correct me. John 9. We may not get back to this for three weeks because I'm preaching, I think, the next few weeks. And I'm going to be preaching things that will touch on this. Do your best. Read John 9. What is John telling us? What's the point? The first one of these we that I had for a assignment for version put, I got wrong and I was so upset. I tried so hard and I did Greek and I read and I looked, read and I looked. I got it wrong. I think I know why now. Because I had the Red Cross reference in my mind, but I, I missed the point even of that. I'll tell you sometime about that when I got right. I didn't get any more bad grades in that class because I figured out what he was looking for, and I was okay from there on. But I want you to feel like you can learn, you can understand, you can read, you can use your tools, and God can use you to do these things. God will raise up other teachers. I'm sitting in the hospital. I think somebody else needs to be able to do this. So we don't know who God's going to raise up, teach everybody, and see what comes of it. Here, close in prayer, please. Well, thank you, Lord, for this teaching. And we pray, Lord, uh, for continued healing upon Bob. And we do pray, Lord, as we begin to study this John 9, that we would become better readers so that we better understand your word and the what was inspired by your spirit, Lord. And we do pray, Lord, as we go to worship and to praise you, that we would be about you and your purposes today. We pray that as we go forward in Acts, that we'd learn about your great outreach to the Gentiles and to the world, and that you would place that gospel upon our hearts and give us the same compelling to be bold in the gospel. We thank you again for Bob. We pray for healing upon him and blessings upon our day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.